this time of year, is this the time of year where people start to watch the Hallmark Christmas movies? Admit it. Who watches the Hallmark Christmas movies? Okay. And the rest of you, you're like, some of you watch it. I know. There are two people in my life that absolutely love the Hallmark Christmas movies. One is my mother-in-law. And the second is Tony from my building. Okay. And Tony is a tough guy, Italian, Brooklyn man. I mean, he's seen some things. And I'm like, man, what this dude, like when I, I'm like, man, this guy's got some stories, but the stories he loves to watch are the Hallmark Christmas movies. He is, I mean, he is not ashamed to admit it. And he'll stand on our front stoop and he'll tell us all about the Hallmark Christmas movies. And I've seen enough of them with my wife and with my mother-in-law to know that all these movies follow essentially the same plot. The plot is this hardworking city girl, Right. And she has to go to the country against her wishes. She's a journalist and she's got to go report on a story. She's a work assignment. Maybe she inherited a farm or an inn from like a, from someone. Am I, am, I, am I right so far? Yeah. And she doesn't want to go. She's annoyed. And when she gets out of the car for the first time, she gets mud on her expensive boots. You know that shot. That exact shot. But while she's there, she's at a diner or a gas station. And there she meets a small town fix-it man. Flannel shirt guy. And he's unimpressed with her fancy wardrobe. And she thinks he's low class. But later, it's revealed that he's either a secret millionaire, a prince, or Santa Claus's son. Am I right so far? I'm, this, is how, this is what these movies are. But against all odds, they fall in love. And he proposes on Christmas Eve. And they kiss on Main Street. And they're always wearing peacoats and scarves. While the snow falls, the camera pans out, and the credits roll. Hallmark Christmas movies. Did, is, am I right or what? My question is... What happens next? Like, what happens after the picturesque wedding? And I've always thought, and this is with all romantic comedies, I've always thought there should be a sequel that shows the couple after the honeymoon. You know what I mean? They're trying to figure out how to join bank accounts. Like a movie about that. Or a movie about trying to figure out where to live. Like, he, I mean, he's got to commute to North Pole every year because he's Santa Claus's son. Who pays the bills? Who vacuums the floor? Who makes decisions about the vacation schedule? Like, I, I, we love great stories of people falling in love at Christmas time, but where is the movie about the mundane, everyday marriage? Nobody wants to see that movie. It's not as entertaining. But anyone who has been married for any length of time knows that romance and charm can get you to the wedding day, but it takes something more to maintain a marriage for the long haul faithfulness, commitment, humility, honor. Submission, sacrifice, and not just on the fun days and the exciting days, but on the everyday, the mundane days. Now, we're in a study in the book of Exodus. And most people, I think, whether Christian or Jewish or not, most people in our culture, I think, know the first half of the story fairly, of the Exodus fairly well. The exciting parts, at least. Moses in a basket. Moses adopted into Pharaoh's household. Moses in the burning bush. The plagues. The parting of the Red Sea. It's this incredible story of rescue and deliverance. God's power and His might and His faithfulness. A lot of people know that story. 
But after this, for many people, the, the story of Exodus, the book of Exodus, the details become a little fuzzy. What happens after God delivers them from slavery? What happens after they leave Egypt? See, unlike the Hallmark movies, though, the Exodus story actually gives us the sequel. It actually shows us how the Israelites learned to follow God in the mundane, everyday existence of life in the wilderness after the miraculous deliverance. And see, it's in this, it is this part of the Exodus story that we're now getting into in our study of this book. See, the theatrical part is over for the most part. All the exciting Charlton Heston moments, those are behind us now. They're out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. And now the book of Exodus turns its focus on how to follow God in the everyday mundane aspects of life in the wilderness. And we pick up today in Exodus 19 and 20, and it's going to end today with the Ten Commandments. And so at this point in the story, God has rescued, delivered, saved the Israelites from generations of slavery in Egypt. God has raised up Moses as a leader. He sent plagues on Egypt, parted the Red Sea, killed the Egyptians, their oppressors, their enemies. He's miraculously provided water and food for them in the wilderness each day, the manna and water from the rock. I mean, he's been so faithful and so good to them. And what have they done? Not much of anything, really. And now God, though, he's going to speak to them about how they are supposed to follow him now at this stage of their lives. He's going to say, I saved you, but I didn't save you to nothing. I saved you for something. I saved you for me and for my purposes. I have a plan for your life. I have a will for your life. And I have expectations for how this relationship is going to work now that we're in the wilderness. Now that I've rescued you. He says in Exodus 19... Verse one, it says on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. You know, Moses is leading them. And I think Moses has got to be so excited to bring the people to Sinai because that's where God spoke to him. That's where God gave him his calling in life. Remember the burning bush? And Moses is like, you know, it's like the kids. Like I'm taking my kids to Disney World in three weeks or in two weeks. And I'm like so excited because I have these memories as a child. I'm like, I get to take my children to see these special places. You know, Moses is like, oh, I get to take them to the place where God spoke to me. And so he takes them to the wilderness of Sinai and says they set out, verse 2, from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. They were in front of the mountain. And while Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him out of the mountains saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. He says, you yourselves. This is what God says to the people of Israel. And notice he's going to remind them what he's done for them. You yourselves, you've seen what I've done to the what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. He reminds them what he's done for them and how good and faithful he's been. And now he's going to tell them who they are and how they must live as a response. He says, look, you've seen what I've done. I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you will, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And Moses speaks those to the people of Israel. And the rest of chapter 19 is they say to, they say to Moses, the people say to Moses, they say, yeah, we want to obey God. How do we do it? 
And Moses says, okay, I'm going to go up to God and I'm going to find out how. But you must prepare yourself, consecrate yourself, cleanse yourself for God to speak to you. Prepare yourself for what God is going to say to you. Prepare for worship. And Moses goes up the mountain and up on the mountain, he receives the Ten Commandments. He comes down, he proclaims them to the the people and he says, this is how you are to live as the people of God. And we're going to get to the Ten Commandments in a moment. But for now, there's a few things we must grasp from these first six verses before we can actually read the Ten Commandments. The first things I need you to see is the timing of the law, the timing of the Ten Commandments. Notice in 19 verse 4, he says, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, obey these things I'm giving you. See, we're 20 chapters. God is reminding them what he has done. He has already saved them. And we're 20 chapters into the book of Exodus before God gives the people his law. 20 chapters before he gives any rules. The first half of the book of Exodus is the story of Israel's salvation. Meaning, it's a story of how they are freed from slavery. How God intervenes in their lives and frees them from bondage with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Not by their own work. They don't do anything. God does it all. God saves them from slavery and from bondage. He frees them, so to speak, from the penalty of sin. They were helpless to save themselves, but God intervened, rescued them. See, the first half of the book tells of Israel's salvation. The second half, however, which we're going to give the next several weeks to, is the story of Israel's sanctification. They're free from slavery. They're free from the penalty of sin, but they are still going to have to wrestle with the power of sin in their lives. We've seen this the last few weeks. They still have cravings for Egypt. They're still tempted to look back. They were out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness with God. But it was in the wilderness that not only did they have to learn how to live with God, but they had to learn how to get all those remnants of Egypt out of their souls. They still craved the food in Egypt. God is trying to teach them to crave the manna in the wilderness. And, it's in, and they need the wilderness to ch- for God to change their appetites and their desires. And they need the wilderness as a place for them to learn utter dependence on God. So they're free. They've been saved. But the story of Israel, that's the first 20 chapters. But now the next half of Exodus, it's the story of Israel learning how to live as free people. They're living into their freedom. Listen, the Exodus story is a story for you and me as well. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's what has already happened to you. You have already been freed from the penalty of your sin. You have been saved. That is salvation. God no longer remembers your sin. God no longer holds your sin over you. He is preparing a place in heaven for you because of what Jesus has done. Not because you've done anything. It is, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of any works that you've done so that you can boast. There's, you have been saved by grace through faith. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is true of you right now. But as we all know, it takes time for us to be completely free from the power of sin. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you ought to know that you are free from the penalty of sin. You don't have to pay for your sin any longer. But you and I both know that we still wrestle with the power of sin over our lives. 
And we still wrestle and we still fight with ourselves. But over time, as we learn to obey the way of Jesus, we learn to say no to sin and yes to God. And as we do that, we will live more and more free lives. We will live into our freedom. That's called sanctification. The first half of Exodus, God has saved us. The second half, God is sanctifying us. And sanctification requires obedience. And see, most people, religious and irreligious people, get this backwards. Many people think that we're saved from the penalty of our sin by how well we obey the law. God will love us. He will bless us. He will save us if we act right. That's the story that we're often led to believe. But think about when the law was given to the Israelites. Was the law given to the Israelites before the plagues and the Exodus? Did God come to them and say, hey, look, I know you're slaves right now. I know you're walking in darkness. I know that you're in bondage. But if you obey these commands, then I will rescue you from Egypt. God doesn't say that. God just comes to them. and He says, you are my chosen people. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to rescue you. And you won't have to do a thing except for trust me. And God saves them, redeems them, calls them his children. Then he gives them the law. The law is not given to them until they are out of captivity, until they are saved by grace through faith alone. That is when the law is given. And I want like if there's only one thing you ever get from me as your pastor, it's you've got to know that. You've got to know that that the laws of God come after he has already saved you. You do not obey the laws of God to be saved by God or to be loved by God. You're already loved by him. Now you obey out as a response to the love he has already shown you. If you never grasp the importance of this, religion will always feel like slavery to you. The law of God, the commands of God, they will feel like rules to control you, to keep you in line. If you believe the lie that you must first obey God in order to be loved by God, you will never feel free because you will never know if he truly loves you or if he truly cares for you. And those laws will feel arbitrary and mean to you. Why is God telling me I can't do this? What? Or that or this? or what? They'll feel arbitrary and mean to you. But if you know that you are loved by God, that he has been generous to you, that he has saved you, that he has been faithful to you, then you will have a desire to obey him and you'll be able to trust that God's laws are for your good. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses tells a story about a little boy. And that boy, he's a child. He wasn't alive during the Exodus. This is years down the road. And he had never seen God's faithfulness on that scale before. And the little boy says to his dad, Dad, why do we have to obey all these laws? Why do we got to do all these things that God says? Why do we have to obey all these laws and these statutes? And, you know, the dad doesn't turn to the child and say, Well, son, because that's what God says. And if you don't obey God, there will be trouble. He doesn't say that. You know what the dad replies is Deuteronomy 6, verse 21 through 25. He says, son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Why? For our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. 
Dad, why do we obey the Ten Commandments? Well, son, because God has been faithful and good. And if we trust Him, we'll obey His commands because we know that they are good. It's like my kids, my, my, my daughter, my oldest daughter and my son, they're at the age where they just butt heads all the time. Why do I have to forgive my brother? You know what I, you know what I want to say? Because I said so. <laughs> because I'm tired of you screaming. That's what I want to say. But that's a teaching moment for the children. Why do I have to forgive my brother? Well, because Christ has forgiven you, sweetheart. And we're to love as Christ has loved us. It's important that we know the timing of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19.4, you and yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, here's here's my loss. Never forget the order of the Ten Commandments. Salvation first, then sanctification. Now I want you to see the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Ten Commandments. He says, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Have you ever asked God, God, what's, what's your will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? What's God's will for my life? Or have you ever asked the question, what is God's purpose for my life? Well, God gives the people of Israel the answer to that question right here. He says, my purpose for you is that you will be my treasured possession and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what does that mean? A kingdom of priests, a kingdom that you would have a king. And that king is God himself. I will be your king. Of priests. Now, what is a priest? Now, we often think of an old man in a collar when we think priest. But to the Hebrew mind in the Old Testament, they, they, the purpose of a priest is someone who represents God to the world. To, uh, someone who offers a picture to the world of what God is like. The Ten Commandments and all the laws that follow, they are a blueprint of how Israel is to represent God to the world. God's laws display his character. And as the people live them out, the world will see what God is like. That is what it means to be a priest. He says, you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what does holy mean? It means set apart. Holiness means that you are, there, there's something utterly unique and special about you. And to be holy means that you are to to live holy lives. Because you are set apart, you're to live set apart lives. And they would represent God through holiness. And you know, I hear, sometimes one of the things I hear in Christianity sometimes today is it feels like Christians, it's like we want so bad to make Christianity cool. Do you know what I mean? It's like we, we feel like, like, God, like the church needs our PR. We need to spin the laws of God so that God can get good PR. And so I'll hear it all the time and I'm tempted to do it myself. It's like, oh, I'm not like one of those Christians. I'm cool. I'm edgy. You know what I mean? Like I don't wear like I wear like I don't tuck my shirt when I preach. Like we don't wear like suits and ties. Like we're cool. We're edgy. I have tattoos. Like I might even, you know, and, and like we like we try to be edgy and we try to like convince the world that we're kind of like them. And I'm like, that is not the way that God said that we would represent him to the world. Listen, we've got to stop trying to make Christianity cool. And what we've got to start focusing on is being holy. 
Because God has called us to be holy as He is holy. And as we obey God's commands and as we live holy lives that are set apart and unique from the rest of the world, the world may hate us. The Scripture says that many people will, but many others will look on us and they will see our good deeds and they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. Be holy as He is holy, 1 Peter says. And so this is the Old Testament and it's written to a specific group of people, to the people of Israel, to the nation of Israel. And many people might ask, I say, well, does this apply to us? Does this apply to us today, 21st century New Yorker Christians? Yes, it applies to you. And here's how I know. 1 Peter 2. Peter is writing to Christians that are scattered all over the world. Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. And he literally quotes this passage. And he applies it directly to the church of Jesus. This is what Peter says to us. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. And then Peter goes on to say, do not be angry, do not have malice, do not envy, boast. He gives the Ten Commandments to the people. So the laws of God apply to us today. And why do they apply to us and why should we obey? The same reasons that they did for the Israelites. Because he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. So now we obey because God has been good to us. So what was God's will and his purpose for Israel? It was for them to represent God to the world. And what is God's purpose for your life and for my life? And what is God's purpose for crossroads? And what is God's purpose for all the churches in New York City? To represent God to the world. To be a kingdom of priests. To be a holy nation. So to recap so far, we obey because of what God has done for us. And we obey to represent him to the world. Now, this ought to shape the way we view ethics, morality, obedience, and obedience in the Christian life. Because I see sometimes the, the tricks that we often use to disobey God is we negotiate with God what he really means and what the commandments are for. And here's an example of that. Before we moved to Brooklyn, um, I was a pastor to college students. And I love college students. I love college students. And I would have college students sit in my living room at, at all hours of the night. And then we had kids and we're like, we can't do this anymore. We're going to have to like hit the eject button, move to Brooklyn. And, but we would have college kids in our house all the time. And I would hear sometimes like I would hear some of these guys, they would try to negotiate the commands of God with me. Like there was some kind of loophole in obedience to God. And so they'd be like, I know the scriptures say this about like purity and sex. But what about first base? What about second base? Is that okay? And then they say, well, I go to hell if I, and this is what I want to scream. No, you won't go to hell if you mess up, but you've already been freed from that. The commands of God are not there to be negotiated. They're to be trusted. Why are you trying to negotiate with the one who has rescued you and redeemed you? Why are you trying to negotiate the commands of God when he's been faithful to you? See, the purpose of the law, and I think many of these causes, this is, and I'm, I'm guilty of it, where we mess up is we sometimes believe that the purpose of the law is to just keep us in line. And if that's true, we're going to push up against the line, right? If the purpose of the law is just to, to keep us in check, 
then the natural tendency of our heart is to push as close to that line as we can without going over. And that's what these college students were doing. What, second base? Is that okay? Like, and what I want to say to them, look, the purpose of God's law is not to keep you down. The purpose of God's law is for you to represent God's character to the world. Now let me ask you, on your date with your girlfriend, how are you best representing God to her? The faithfulness of God to her. The purity of God to her. See, the thing you're trying to negotiate with God, stop and ask yourself, what most represents the character of God in the world? Now, what is God's will for the Israelites? It's for them to be holy, for them to be a kingdom of priests. It's not for them to become legalists and fixate themselves on the details of the law, but to always remember the one to whom the law points. And then to obey the law out of a desire to honor him and image him and represent him to the world. And that's true for us as well. Why do we obey God's commands? What is the purpose of the law? To represent his character to the world. And what is his character? Now we get to the Ten Commandments. It says, and God spoke all these words. He reminds them again, look, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't you love that? God reminds them what he's done for them before he tells them what he expects of them. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. What does that say about God's character? It says that he's the one true God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or what is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Then he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Those second and third commandments, those are about honoring the name and the image of God. And I, I used to hear like, you know, the Lord's taking the Lord's name in vain. I was told that you just don't say GD, you know, damn, it's not God's last name is what I was told. And yes, don't say though, don't, don't, we don't use, that's using the Lord's name in vain. We don't do that. But to use the Lord's name in vain is to speak anything that is untrue about God. You know, who you, you know, you know where I often hear the Lord's name used in vain? is when we try to score political points in political arguments. We pull out the Bible to, to win the Facebook debate. You, you, know where I, you know where we use the Lord's name in vain? When we say things about God that the Scriptures don't say. Well, I know the Bible says, but God, I think God is the kind of God who would like it if I... That's using God's name in vain. To, to honor God's name is to tell the truth about who He is. And then he says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. I'm convinced. You want to talk about representing God to our city? You want to know the best way we can, one of the best ways we can represent God to our city in New York is that if we learn how to rest. Because what, what is New York called? The city that what? Never sleeps. Never sleeps. And I know, I mean, horror story after horror story after horror story of people who come here, they burn out and they, their lives fall apart because they work themselves to the bone. 
People in our city are so exhausted and so tired. And God commands his people. He says, take a day of rest. And many of us fail to do it. Why? Because we don't really trust that he's going to provide for us on that seventh day. That's why he told the Israelites in the wilderness. He said, gather food for six days, but on the seventh day, trust that there will be enough food for you. I don't want you to gather. Listen, you want to represent God to this city. If your coworkers and if your employees or if your employers saw that you did not live as a slave to the schedule and as a slave to the constant need to perform, it perhaps would represent God to the world. Some people may lose their jobs over taking a Sabbath in this city. But do we trust that God will provide our daily bread on that seventh day? Then he says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God establishes authority and as we honor authority, we are learning what it means to submit to him. You shall not murder. God is the giver of life. That is his character. You shall not commit adultery. Why? Because God is faithful and you are to represent God to the world. You shall not steal. Why? Because all things in this world belong to God. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Why? Because God is truthful. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet. Why not? Because God is enough. Because God is enough. And the next several chapters are going to expand on the Ten Commandments, on the laws. And if you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you'll see that all of the laws of God flow from the Ten Commandments and they all teach us about God's character and how to represent the world. If you read Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, here's what you're going to find in the laws. God's people are to respect one another within the family and within the community. God's people are to be exclusively loyal to Yahweh as God. Don't entertain other gods, don't entertain other religions, but exclusive loyalty to Yahweh as God. God's people are to be economically generous. God's people are to honor social relationships, their father, their mother. God's people, there ought to be just, God's people who have employees, are, there ought to be justice in regard to employment rights. Social compassion to the disabled. Judicial integrity in the legal system. Neighborly attitudes and behavior. They must preserve religious distinctiveness. Sexual integrity, rejection of idolatry and occult practices, racial equality, compassion toward ethnic minorities, and practical love for foreigners and sojourners and aliens. That's, that's, what is God's will for my life? To obey those things. And why do we obey? Because as we obey, we learn about the character of God. And the more we learn about the character of God, the more we love Him. And the more we love Him, the more we enjoy Him. And as we obey him, we are more and more slow. We are slowly formed more and more into his image so that we can better represent him to the world. Now, how did the people respond when they heard God's law? Exodus 20 ends like this. It says, now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak directly to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people of God stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, how did they respond when God spoke to them? 
fear. They were afraid. Now, why were they afraid? They were afraid because God had just reminded them of how good he had been to them and how faithful he had been to them. And then he gave them the law, what was expected of them. And they were afraid because they knew their own hearts and they knew that they could not obey that law perfectly. And they said to Moses, we can't face him. We need you to go speak to him. We need you to mediate for us. They asked Moses to mediate between them and God because they knew they were unworthy to step up on that mountain because they would die. And they needed someone to go for them. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever had the experience where you've messed up? Where you've done that thing that you said you would never do again? Or you've sinned in some way, you've failed in some way, and in that moment you experience so much shame, guilt, and fear? You've been there before? And have you ever been in that moment and you think to yourself, there's no way I can pray right now. You're like, I could not even pray right now. I can't even open my Bible right now. Like, I can't face God right now. Have you ever been there? That is exactly what the Israelites felt. And that's why they asked him, they said, Moses, can you go talk to him for me? Because I, we, we, I'm, I'm afraid. See, it is a good thing. It is a good thing for us to fear the holiness of God. We need the humility to admit that we need a mediator. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But fear and humility can only, or fear can only take us so far. We need humility to admit that we need a mediator. See, I began this, story, this sermon with a Hallmark Christmas movie reference. And I guess I'm in the Christmas spirit a little early this year. But there's another time when God's people were trembling and they were afraid. Luke chapter 2, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord, just like on the mountain, shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. King James Version says, and they were sore afraid. I used to think Linus just had a speech impediment, but the word is sore. They were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, do not fear. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The mediator has come. The Savior has come. And then those very same angels sang a song. They said, glory in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, who on earth is he pleased with? Well, he's speaking to the shepherds and the shepherds, they were afraid. Why is God pleased with the shepherds? Is it because they were good? No, they trembled in God's presence. God is pleased with the people on earth because the child that was born is good. And that child that was born is the Savior that was born onto the earth. He will mediate for us. See, Jesus is our mediator. He stands with us in the wilderness in our sin, shame, guilt, and fear. He carries our sin on his back, takes the penalty of our sin onto himself. He obeys the law perfectly for us, even as we fail. He earns the reward for God's obedience to the law, which is eternal life with God and his kingdom. And he shares it with us. That's the good news of the gospel. And what salvation is for you and me is like the Israelites. We must admit that we cannot go up the mountain on our own. Or else we would be destroyed because we haven't obeyed. We need someone who is obedient to God to go up that mountain for us. 
But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus says, I'm going to cover you. You come with me and you can walk into the presence of God with me. He is a mediator. He is a perfect mediator. And because he is God himself, we now can enter into God's presence. That's the good news of the gospel. It's good news, great joy for all people. He's saved us. He has called us holy. And now he shows us how we can be who we are. God told Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, obey. And Jesus says to us, you have seen what I did to the enemy, your enemies of sin, shame, guilt and fear, how I bore them on my back on the cross so I can make you holy and bring you to myself. Now, obey. Become who you are. Let's pray.